She's sewing and she's angry, but she's sewing something that she loves and something that she's interested in instead of sewing flowers and being like, oh, this is rubbish. So I had this image. She considers what to work on. Her mother would want her to work on the shirt for her father, but her mother is upstairs and her father is away at sea. She plucks a light scrap of canvas opposed to prescriptive. You can do facts, but you don't have to. You can imagine. That just feels like quite freeing. In Things were rather dull. The governess then was vexing. She used to take them for long walks in the mornings, which was good, and make them study flowers, which was not good. She said she did not like it. It her to be the straight and narrow. I just wanted these little glimpses of other worlds, almost like walking past a window, where you see a wider shore and a wider world around you. Little windows onto other worlds might be something in that. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. This autumn series began with M. John Harrison, who is channelling Edith Piaf. But at the same time, it's true. There's nothing you can do about the past. My real... Then we welcomed Irena Carper, who has moved to song. It's like long life. You we know? chatted with Sean Patrick Burney, who's thinking of investing in some new crockery. We've got some good mugs at work, but not like world's best dad, I don't think. And Shauna McKay, who's contemplating some kind of career change. <laughs> Sound like a witch now. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, we bring this series to a close with Catriona Bolt. When we met up in South London, she started by reading from the opening of her short story, Bloom. By the time she sits down with her embroidery, it is getting dark. Her sister scolds but lights a tallow candle. She pushes it down the work table, the flame shuddering along the old wood. It smells like meat. She thinks, we need a new work table. She opens her basket and selects a needle which she slips in the gap between her front teeth. She considers what to work on. Her mother would want her to work on the shirt for her father. But her mother is upstairs and her father is away at sea. She plucks a light scrap of cambric from amid fraying linens and old bits of silk. She removes the needle from her teeth. It fits so well there. She traces the shapes of her thoughts on the cambric selects a soft brown silk. Not more brown, sister. Sister is watching. Yes, sister, more brown. Her sister says, I hope you are not making mushrooms again. You know Mama does not like it. She says, I hope you are not doing flowers again. Sister says, why not? She says, their roots will strangle you in the night. Sister goes out crying. Having got what she wanted, she settles back into her chair and swings her feet up onto sisters. The fire crackles and the candle sputters back to it. She selects the brown. She begins to sew. The mushrooms began some time ago. It was the year before her father went away the last time. Things were rather dull. The governess then was vexing. She used to take them for long walks in the mornings, which was good and make them study flowers, which was not good. She said she did not like it. I do not like flowers. The governess said she did not care. She complained to her mother, and her mother said, but flowers are just what you should be enjoying, my love. 
She crossed her arms and stuck out her lower lip, stamped on the floor. Flowers, she said, are useful to no one. It rained for a day or two and they could not go out on their walk. Sister said she missed the flowers. She stitched primly at her sampler, silly silk violets, uneven and botanically inaccurate. Sister is much better at it now than she was then. The threaded ivy on the emerald silk purse she made last Christmas was just the thing to go with her new green dress. For herself, Sister always does daisies. After a day or two, the sun came out. They walked among steaming water meadows, dazzled and golden. They went into the wood, and she wandered off the path, kicking up leaves and looking for ravens. The mud sucked at her boots like a thirsty babe. She was wiping the mud onto some ragged grasses when she saw them. They were growing against the wet black trunk of an elm tree. Toadstools, as bright as glazed cherries, their undersides ghostly spokes. She reached out to touch one. Child! She snatched her hand back. What on earth are you doing? Those might be poisonous. She said, but they are so beautiful. The governess said, and there's a lesson for you. A lesson for us all. Bloom is the story of a growing obsession with mushrooms. So we began by investigating its roots. I was reading the book that everyone read a couple of years ago, the Merlin Sheldrake book, Entangled Life, and I got really, really into it. And I started thinking, I think I've missed my vocation. Because <laughs> you're a bit of a fan of mushrooms, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah. I, I might try and grow some this winter, but I haven't quite got there yet. I keep nearly getting a mushroom tattoo. Have you got a species picked out? I'd love to get ink caps, because it's like writing and mushrooms. A double whammy. Exactly, yeah. I'm trying not to do too many so that my mum doesn't have a heart attack. I'm trying to combine the two in one. So I was reading that story and I read an amazing piece called Queer Theory for Lichens, which is actually a, a scientific essay, but it was very gripping. And I just had it in my mind. And then I'd previously been working on the story which had this character. And I think I'd written about a page of it and then lost it which was her sewing, but being very angry while she was sewing. And it was definitely the same time period. And I think I found the clinch when I thought she's sewing and she's angry, but she's sewing something that she loves and something that she's interested in instead of sewing flowers and being like, oh, this is rubbish. So I had this image from the previous story and then it sort of bled through into the mushrooms. Have you got a favourite mushroom? I was really obsessed with death caps when I was little. I had a book about plants and I used to look at the death cap page. Like, so I, was, <laughs> I was scared that I was somehow going to get poisoned by death caps, I think. I love ink caps, like shaggy ink caps. They look so cool. We found some in my parents' garden. They bleed out into these dark edges and they just look amazing. That's the decaying process that causes the ink to happen. Mushrooms have got this kind of funny double status, aren't they? They're food and poison. Yeah, that's what's interesting about them. And I think it's also this thing of it's the fruit. That's the bit that we see. But then there's this incredible, well, they call it the wood wide web. These incredible networks of mycelium root going through the soil. And there's so many different kinds. They look like one another. And you could be eating a delicious mushroom or you could be eating poison. Or there's that one called, I really want to try it. There's the one called chicken of the woods, which apparently tastes almost exactly like chicken. And the texture is very chickeny. So I think it's kind of this idea that they can like 
be something else while they're also being themselves that is really fascinating. Do you go mushrooming yourself? I haven't because I'm a bit scared of... <laughs> it is a bit scary, isn't it? I don't want to kill myself or anyone. Also living in South East London. But maybe Sydenham Hill Woods is a good place to start. And there are some foraging walks. So maybe I'll do that. Because mushrooms, they're nature, aren't they? Which we're all supposed to like, right? But they're not pretty like flowers or fluffy like rabbits. Did you want to look at the darker side? That's sort of the dynamic between the sisters in the story. The darker sister who's constantly told that she's not how she should be. And that's seen through the mushrooms. But I think the mushrooms also kind of feel like a bit of an escape for her from the flowers and the balls and the whatever and wearing the silk slippers and things. And she's trying to kind of adapt her life into a way that she can live it through the mushrooms, but through something that is quite dark and that does have this killing quality and that she associates with death. Everyone in the story associates the mushrooms, I think, with death and with things moving under the surface where they shouldn't necessarily be. So I think, yeah. Because they're straightforwardly transgressive. Her mother says, you shouldn't be thinking about it, you should be looking at the flowers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're kind of a transgressive family of organisms. People thought they were plants for so long, but they've also got connections with algae. We now know that mushrooms and fungi are kind of living, but they're also kind of not. And they're kind of sentient, but they're kind of not. And they have this collective brain and everyone's very entranced by the wood wide web idea. But I think there's darker aspects to that. You've got The Last of Us and all the zombie mushroom movies. Oh, that's a good mushroom as well, like cordyceps. We've got to love it. Um, <laughs> we watched The Last of Us and the whole first episode was me explaining why it wouldn't work in this way. I actually think the way that it works is creepier than the zombie idea. It's kind of circular. They spawn over columns of ants and infect the ants. And then the mushroom grows in the ant's brain, basically, and in its nervous system and takes it over. And then it forces it to climb up to a certain height where it bites on in like a sort of death grip. And then the ant dies, the mushroom sprouts and then spores over the column of ants again. But what they've realised is that they all go to like exactly the same height. So it must be the optimum height for the mushrooms to spore and to get over all the different ants. I just think that's so creepy. The idea of the mushroom taking you over and the biting on. And it feels so small because it's ants, but at the same time, that's a life. It's so creepy. The infiltration idea, I think, is really creepy. Yeah, and that infiltration, mushrooms get everywhere. Yeah, they are everywhere. They're like literally in all the soil that you see. They're probably growing in my houseplants. They can grow in you. We have fungi in our bodies and on our bodies. And I think it's this sort of like, fourth dimension that we don't really engage with and maybe we can't because it's too creepy all the other organisms living in and on us we're not just one thing we're like a plurality of things we contain multitudes to use a real platitude but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but the multitudes are mushrooms and bacteria and viruses and that's actually really kind of scary and something that society tries to repress in the way that the mother does i mean the mother wants the protagonist to go on the rails to do the expected thing what I think the protagonist of this story is doing is trying to fight against that idea and feel connected to things around her. And everyone else is finding that very freaky. There's very slight hints at colonialism in the story with the father being off at sea and everything and the background of there being war. And I feel like that slightly links into the sort of idea of shutting yourself away and not being part of the natural world and not being close to the things around you. 
That's one of the pleasures of the historical setting, isn't it? Is that one of the reasons why you wanted to reach back a little bit? It just felt absolutely right. I had that image of the sewing. It just felt right that it was historical. I have a real bug about connecting that particular period during the Napoleonic Wars in like the early 19th century with mycology. And I don't know why. And I'm going to find out at some point. Maybe I had a dream. It's just this image I have of the expanding world, but also new outposts of empire and things sprouting up everywhere. I think it's such an interesting time period. I love Jane Austen. You can probably tell from the story. I can quote those books at length. And I think it's so interesting that they have that political context inside them, but you have to sort of crack it open. Sometimes if you're writing about contemporary stuff in a contemporary setting, it kind of has to be there. Otherwise, people are going to say, why isn't it there? But if you're writing, maybe especially about women in the past, you don't expect it. And then if it's there, then it feels like an Easter egg almost. Young women being told to do what they're supposed to and go down the rails at society, that's nothing we do in the 21st century anymore, obviously. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Obviously, when you're writing about history and thinking about history, it's completely related to how we see things now. One of the things that attracts me about historical writing is that you can potentially say things about contemporary society without having to sort of hit it on the nose. I like things to feel a little bit kind of, people would probably call it like folky or like mystical or like just have like an edge of defamiliarity to it. And I think the past and historical fiction is a really good way of getting that. The Wolf Hall novels, she does such a good job of making it feel familiar. And we know that it's people, but they are different people with completely different minds and ways of seeing That's the joy of historical fiction is that you can step into another land and another country, but no one lives there anymore. So no one can tell you that you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It, It just kind of feels right or not. That's really nice because it just gives you that way of being instinctive in your writing as opposed to prescriptive. You can do facts, but you don't have to. You can imagine. That just feels like quite freeing in working in historical fiction and in a historical setting. But it obviously doesn't mean that you can't then say things about how we live now. Fairyland is kind of at the edges of this story, isn't it? Did you have to rein it in? I mean, I love Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell and I had all the flower fairy books growing up. And my dad loves Arthur Rackham, the illustrator, who has impacted the way that we think about fairies. It's tempting always to kind of step over the boundary. I like to have the thing in my mind that I'm referencing and I have a very strong vision of fairyland I guess most of my writing comes from kind of feelings and atmospheres so I have an atmosphere for fairyland and it's slightly ominous and it's a big flat land and there's a road in the middle and it's quite dark and the sky's grey almost like it's black and white and I kind of wanted that in my mind but obliquely referenced in the story as something that the child she doesn't understand necessarily like what it is and I wanted that oblique reference but I didn't want to describe it ever because she doesn't know she just wants it to be somewhere that she isn't somewhere that's different from the challenges that she's facing in her life there in some sense but she doesn't have access to it yeah exactly and she's trying to get access again through that transgressive space of the mushrooms and they're creating their circles and things Maybe it's also interesting that it's a maid who tells her how to get there. Maybe it's that sort of like folk idea. But I think it's also, 
she shouldn't probably be talking to the maids either. I wanted her to kind of think about servants a bit. It felt right that she was gentry because then she doesn't have to work and she then has time for the mushrooms. But it felt right also to have the thread of these people's lives kind of weaving around hers. She talks to the gamekeeper. Yeah, who obviously is an important person to talk to if you're foraging for mushrooms because he's got that knowledge. But her father also kind of seems to know a bit about it in that he tells her not to do it. But I guess she's kind of interested in that folk knowledge and knowledge of the countryside that she's shut off from in her manor house with her parents. And her dad's like shut off at sea. So he's like as far from the woods and the mushrooms as you can kind of get to. I guess those people are maybe her like access to the outside world a little bit. And that's fairyland as well. Because always in the background is this question of where does her money, where does her father's money come from? Yeah, absolutely. He captures a French frigate. That would be a big, big pile of money. I've just been reading the uh, the Master and Commander books. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I know almost exactly how much. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so he's clearly got a big pile of money from that frigate. Um, and presumably he's been mainly making his fortune in naval warfare. But if he's got an 11-year-old and a slightly older child as well, I'm not exactly sure where we are in the time period, but they weren't that long. So he's definitely edging on to kind of other naval exploits. We don't know. And he's probably got family money as well. And obviously most family money during that time is kind of tied up with slavery. And if not slavery, then other forms of colonial exploitation. So there's always that sort of element in the background where you're kind of thinking, oh, this is a little bit uncomfortable. And I did want that to be there. But always in the background. Yeah, not front and centre, because I think it's a streamlined story, it's short, and I wanted her to be the straight and narrow. I just wanted these little glimpses of other worlds, almost like walking past a window, where you see a wider shore and a wider world around you. It's maybe short, yeah. but another pleasure of the story is the portrait you draw of the pushes and pulls between the two sisters. Are you drawing from life there as well? Actually, my sister is older than me, but she has learning difficulties. So I have an older sister relationship with her. She's of a younger age in her mind, I suppose. She still talks about herself as a child sometimes. That's really sweet. But I do have a young brother. And I don't think we have a sisterly relationship in the sense of sisters are so close. And I obviously do have my sister. You feel differently. But I feel like that bickering, push-pull, wanting very different things and being good at different things is very much drawn from me and my brother. Um, <laughs> and I also, like, I've had close friends growing up who were almost like siblings. Particularly female friendships have had a strong influence on me growing up. You have those sisterly bonds with those people where it's, I don't even like you today, but I guess we're, I guess we're going to the woods. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you working on now? I have been working for ages and I'd actually just need to sit down and write it. I'm putting it off because I'm telling myself I have some research to do. But I'm working on a short story cycle called Ice Fair about different icy events. What I'm working on at the moment is whether some of the stories are historical and some of them are dystopian because the original idea was dystopian. London gets hit by a sort of ice age. That atmosphere is a very strong feeling, but I'm getting different atmospheres now. I read Homegoing and I really liked how it takes different times through history and I thought the link could be ice. But I'm also very slowly researching a novel about the diggers or the true levellers who were this amazing group of Christians who believed in equality for all and they saw that through the prism of the earth and access to the earth. 
that speaks so much to kind of ecological movements today and is kind of like right to Rome stuff, basically. So they just set up this commune just after Charles I was killed. I think they kind of saw this opportunity in this new world, which obviously was then a lot more oppressive and looked quite a lot like the old world. But they got kicked off by landlords after like four months and then they set up another one and then they got kicked off again. But I think it's amazing how transgressive it was to say, oh, we're going to do this for the mutual benefit of everyone in the group and we're going to till the earth together and live together in like peace and harmony. Yeah, it's a really interesting little thing that popped up, like mushroomed during that crazy time. Talking about speculative fiction as well, because that's one of the ways in which nature is a slightly more complicated concept for us here in the 21st century, because it's difficult to think of nature as itself as pretty and fluffy anymore in the teeth of the climate crisis. Yeah, and I think that's quite a big force behind all of my fiction is grappling with the climate crisis and our relationship to the natural world. And obviously, speculative fiction is a very easy way of accessing that. My original pitch for Ice Fair was, what if climate change but reverse? (laughs) And I think that kind of still holds a little bit true. I guess I've always been drawn to ice more than fire. It's very much my misfortune to be born in a period in which we are heading for the fire and not the ice, I guess. Um, But I think maybe I was challenging myself to think of ice in a kind of discomforting way as well and, and the cold. Because it wouldn't be nice if we were suddenly plunged into an ice age. It would be terrible dealing with the anxiety and the feelings about it is one of the reasons that fiction is important in a time of climate change because you kind of have to ask yourself why are we chopping down trees to publish books and why are we kind of worrying about can I get a book deal when like London might be flooded next year we just don't really know what's going to happen and that makes it such an uneasy time stories are always going to be important I hope And maybe helping people deal with their feelings about it helps them move towards action, moving out of despair and into a sort of grieving process that feels more active. We'll keep trying to inspire that move from despair into action right here. That was Katriona Bolt. To read Bloom, as well as brand new stories from M. John Harrison, Irena Carper, Sean Patrick Burney and Shauna McKay, search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-ready secateurs. Hit subscribe in the menu on the right-hand side and you'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics for £20. You'll also unlock our mushrooming archive, with fiction from writers including Joyce Carol Oates, Ali Smith, Diana Evans, Alan Mabanku and Isabel Greenberg. We love hearing what you make of our podcast, our blogs, and, of course, our stories. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram, or Twitter, or send us an email on info at fictionable.world. Record a voice note on your phone, wing it over to us at the same address, and you might just wind up on the Fictionable podcast. With thanks to Catriona Bolt, that's all for this autumn series. So from me, Richard Lee, and from all of us at Fictionable Towers, thanks for listening, and see you in winter. 